welcome to JK It's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties read YA fantasy through a critical lens. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jessie. And I'm Kelly. And today, listeners, is the day we've all been waiting for. We are discussing A Court of Mist and Fury, aka Akamath, by Sarah J. Mass, the second book in the A Court of Thorns and Roses series. So in this book, we have Feyre fighting battles with herself and who she has become post under the mountain slash doing bad shit slash dying slash becoming an entirely different being. And that means figuring her stuff out in so many ways. She's falling in and out of love, making new friends, starting to heal from her trauma and learning where she belongs, which is in the Nate court, which we can finally say. <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> yeah. No spoilers. Yeah. That happens in this book. Yeah. was your initial reaction on this reread um this is probably at least the fourth time i've read this book uh (laughs) thanks goodreads for keeping track of that and i love it every time i think mass is a great storyteller and i especially love some of the things she does with character development in this book i do have to say that sitting down to read this book in a critical way did mean that there were some things i didn't see before that i am now and that there that was really frustrating um and some that were really surprising. I'm really looking forward to talking about those things. This is surprisingly my first reread. Well, I guess maybe not so surprisingly because I only discovered the series and SJM a year ago and Throne of Glass a year ago, which is like, it feels way more than a year ago. Yeah. Wow. It's been quite a year. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> um, but I agree with your point about noticing numerous problematic aspects of the story and the storytelling also really enjoying the book overall and having to kind of, I guess, come to terms with that cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Despite the issues, this book just ticks all my boxes, like in no particular order. There's hot people, fun banter, montages, sexual tension, sex scenes, exciting action, plot twists, meaningful character development, like magic, fun. It's just like, this book is pretty much the perfect example of what our podcast is about, you know, where you love a thing, And then that also implies taking it seriously enough to engage deeply with it and often by way of critique. Agreed. Really excited to talk about it. Time to talk about all things world building in Through the Wardrobe. Okay, so I have kind of a long thing to say in Through the Wardrobe. I feel like I'm pulling a Kelly and going on like, a little rant (laughs) here that's normally your thing it is normally my thing (laughs) um so now that we can finally talk about tamlin i think it's a great time to talk about how amazing it is that mass was able to make us fall in love with tamlin and pseudo hate resand and then completely turn that around in akamath what we did um was want favorite to find love so badly that we ignored all the bad things about tamlin that were right in front of us the whole time which favor was also doing I think this says something important about the difference between quick readings and looking at something more critically and how that allows us to ignore some pretty big things. I think some of this has to do with the emphasis placed on serious reading um, over fun reading or the argument that YA can't actually talk about serious subjects, such as the fact that Tamlin is emotionally abusive, gaslighting Feyre, controlling where and when Feyre could go, and using sex to end arguments. Or that Lucian is complicit in Tamlin's abusive behavior by holding Feyre responsible for Tamlin's emotional well-being. Totally. Or that a couple who cannot communicate effectively isn't likely to be a happy, have a happy, healthy relationship. 
First love and love in general can keep a person from acknowledging the faults in their partners or allows them to ignore the power dynamics in a relationship. And part of this is because no one is dealing with the trauma they suffered with Amarantha. And so Tamlin stops trying to be Feyre's partner and decides he will be her high lord instead. And we see how this doesn't really allow people to change and grow. On page 107, Feyre says, I was not the human girl who needed coddling and pampering and who wanted luxury and easiness. I didn't know how to go back to needing those things to being docile and again on page 137 Ferris says I'm thinking that I was a lonely hopeless person I might have fallen in love with the first thing that showed me a bit of kindness and safety and I'm thinking maybe he knew that maybe not actively but maybe he wanted to be that person for someone and maybe that worked for who I was before maybe it doesn't work for who what I am now I think Mass did an amazing job of showing how someone can easily become so wrapped up in a relationship that they lose their sense of who they are and who they wanted to be. Ranch done. (laughs) It's such an important point that you bring up. It's really, I think, one of the strongest aspects of this particular character and this particular story is this part of Feyre's character arc. And how Mass succeeds in communicating that to the audience and then actually making the readers go through that process with the protagonist is it's really just well crafted. Yeah, I would say I completely agree with you that this is talking about some pretty heavy and important shit. Yes. And on a critical reread, this really jumps into the fore. Because we know how it ends. We know, like, you kind of can get past the sexual tension. It's fun to still reread an experience, right? right? But at the same time, you can kind of engage more deeply with what's going on on a, I'm going to say, deeper level, even though that's annoying to repeat the same word. (laughs) But it's really true, though. You can see the forest for the trees now because you're actually trying to do a critical reread. And when you read something with that perspective in mind and that's like permeating all the the way you're encountering the text it makes a big difference right and I think it also makes a big difference because we've read it before like kind of like you said because when you see the way Tamlin acts and know what's going to happen it's easier to see like oh man he's like kind of a terrible person being I don't know what they prefer to be called on the like a critical reread, it's what we were talking about and couldn't really mention all that much in the right. Akatar episode because we right. didn't want to do spoilers, but there were just so many red flags. And you can just tell that this was architected by Mass the entire time, right. that she kind of knew that this is how the story was going to go, or at least had an inkling, I guess, about what Reese was going to end up being and right. Tamlin was going to end up being. Because it's just now going back when you're paying attention to this. It's like when you're looking for a thing, you see it everywhere. Right, exactly. So I really appreciated that about the world building and how over the course of two books, Mass was able to completely change our feelings about Tamlin. Now, of course, I'm sure some people have read the book, had read Akatar and hated Tamlin to begin with. And I respect that. And you were right. (laughs) Follow your intuition. (laughs) Yes. Side note about Tamlin, I was talking to my friend who's a big nerd about like ballads and fairy tales and stuff like that from like Norse and Old English tradition. Mm -hmm. And Tamlin is an Old English ballad. 
of a human girl who goes into the forest and meets a fairy. There's been a kind of like a Beauty and the Beast like spell set on him and all this stuff. So there's actually an English ballad that I Hmm. think that the main story arc of Tamlin is based on. I'll put some interesting. I'll put some info in the show notes. But I was listening to my friend Tycho talk about this and I was like oh that's just so fascinating because Mass takes that and runs with it she doesn't stay there you know she does a lot more cool stuff with it but I was I was surprised I wonder which came first the ballad or the story of Beauty and the Beast because so often Akatar is like marketed as a retelling of Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast is an 18th century Mm -hmm. story I think it started that way Mm -hmm. there's a good myths and legends podcast about it I can like link to in the show notes the Beauty and the Beast we have today is an amalgam of a bunch of different stories, okay. but the Old English Ballad is definitely older. I want to talk a little bit about the water wraiths and the debt they feel they felt they owed. So I really appreciated that um, Feyre needed slash wanted nothing in return for her good deed, but in the end, she does really benefit from that. And I have like very mixed up feelings about her good deeds and how she usually tends to benefit from them in the end you think it like feels white savory yes especially because i mean i think we probably have already talked about this in the akatar episode or we'll talk about it later but how all the lesser fae are like dark-skinned or they less human looking yeah less perfect looking yeah so (laughs) i feel really weird about it i don't know what do you think it's true that Feyre does have like a certain social capital because mm-hmm. she's Feyre Cursebreaker. Everyone adores her. She like just has access to power, whether it's her own power because she was changed, but she didn't have control over what right. happened to her in that sense. Right. But that she, she just has access to power in so many different ways. She's proximity to the High Lords, proximity to people like Lucian or Rhysand's inner circle or wealth. Right. in general because all these high lords seem to be like miraculously and not miraculously they're wealthy because of you know exploiting value from yeah. other people and lesser fae which we're going to get into the, like the lesser fae thing yeah. later but um <laughs> and the wealth thing <laughs> yeah and the wealth thing <laughs> but i i do agree that it's not as simple as like oh i'm doing this open-hearted nothing in return sort of gesture there's a little bit it's a little murkier than that i think yeah because i do think at one point in this book or the last book she does take a lot of money and give it to like humans and the human place where she came from on the other side of the wall and I don't think she benefits from that in any way because she's ends up not going back and they don't really know who she is right but I don't know I feel weird about this for some reason I think that we'll kind of see what happens with this when we do the next book like how Akawar actually turns out and how the war turns out. And, and I think we'll have, we'll be, maybe be, have a little bit more closure about this, but right. maybe not. Something that's super interesting to me because I've been talking about it a lot with my partner is utilitarianism. Why would you be talking about this with your partner for, for context, for listener oh, context? Oh, because... Um, <laughs> Why is that a thing that comes up? <laughs> um, because he teaches philosophy and no spoilers, but if you've, We've been talking about it a lot in the realm of Avengers Endgame. So, like, if you have seen that, you'll understand why. And if you haven't, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Um, <laughs> but 
I want to talk a little bit about Pharaoh's sacrifice as an act of utilitarianism from the first book. So utilitarianism, I'm going to link to a crash course in the in the show notes that really does a good job of explaining utilitarianism and the different kinds. Thank you, YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> and John Green's brother. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's doing what is best for the most amount of people, even if it's not good for you. So in this case, Pharaoh being willing to kill Tamlin and that is having an effect on her emotional well-being. Is this is like the trolley problem an example of this? Mm, yes, I was talking to my partner about this and they use a different example okay. now, but we could link to that episode of The Good Place. Yeah. Um I was just curious if is that like doing the least harm for the benefit of the most people? Yeah. Like yeah. that's that's utilitarianism? Yes. Okay. So like I guess the experiment they use now is uh like a person is going to kill these group of people and if you kill one person the only one person will die and if you do nothing then all of them will die so it's i think the problem with the trolley problem is like someone's going to die and i don't know i don't really understand all this stuff but i really appreciated this about pharaoh because i do think in the long run a lot of people would say like doing what's best for the most amount of people is probably a good way to live your life as opposed to doing just what's best for you, which I think is like egoism. Um, but I really liked bringing in this, like these philosophical things into the books that we read. Cause we do see it come up a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of sacrifice. I like the heroes has to mm-hmm. sacrifice in their journey and that sort of thing. Yeah. But I really appreciate it. And we see it a lot and not in this book, but in other books with prophecies mm-hmm. um, and free will and all those kinds of things. So it was interesting to see how being a utilitarian can really affect you on a, on a smaller level, like in your day-to-day life, because this is the reason for Feyre's PTSD. <laughs> come back to Tamlin okay for a second and I want to add in resand and talk about this juxtaposition dynamic that really is an axis upon which the entire series and especially this middle book in the series in particular turns around it's just a fundamental part of the world building not masaya sorry beyond that's the word in English (laughs) beyond character building Mm -hmm. and character development it is a part of the world building so just as Tamlin and Resand are shown to be opposites in their personalities in the ways they interact with like subservient people or others in power dynamics their respective relationships with Feyre the night court and the spring court also contrast in really meaningful ways for example the spring court relies on traditions like the tithe and this like quote-unquote how things are done bullshit logic that doesn't update with the times. There are strict hierarchies in the spring court, traditional gender roles, secrecy, resistance to change. The spring court is also represented as a more of a feudal system with this manor house and servants who are invisible, although we do kind of have that in the night court as well. But this manor house, bucolic landscape, gardens, then smaller outposts, the people, the subjects have to come to the manor house and pay this tax. You know, it's just kind of like a, almost like a, Scottish Highlands, like the Mackenzie and the other, you know, members of the clan coming to the clan leader or whatever. But the Night Court, and speci- especially Valaris, which is really the only part of the Night Court that we see besides like Illyrian war camps, which I have a lot to say about Illyrians <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Valaris seems to be the opposite of this Spring Court. Valaris reminded me very much of Paris or of like Amsterdam, this cosmopolitan European type city 
with all the lights, the public venues for and recognition for the arts, musicians playing, music, you can hear music in the street, there are good restaurants, there are different markets, shops, cafes, etc. The river running in the middle of Valaris remind me of the Seine running through the middle of Paris, and the arts district, the rainbow on a hill overlooking the city, Montmartre in Paris is very much like that. So similar to Paris aside, I kind of went on like a long tangent about that but anyway and it doesn't really matter whether or not that's actually it doesn't matter if it's lifted or if it's carbon copy like that doesn't matter what I think is really interesting though is that the night court seems to be more forward thinking and those with power have a different way of relating to their subjects quote-unquote less fear although there is like an undercurrent of fear but like no tithe city dwellers just pay taxes the like people with power the inner circle and resand are part of the day-to-day happenings of the city they're like actually interact with they're one of the people you know the main city is more cosmopolitan so valaris is really positioned as this sort of utopian type place where everything just works Mm -hmm. and that's why it needed to be protected at the expense of all these other people it seemed to me the differences between the two courts and the two high lords are so profound they don't even seem to be inhabiting the same moment in history like you have that feudal backwards quote-unquote conservative thinking versus you have this cosmopolitan european style city landscape with a more forward thinking progressive like capital l liberal type of high lord you know right does that does that make any sense yeah especially when you think about akatar and the fact that we didn't see any of tamlin's subjects in the first book like i didn't even realize there were people that lived on like the outskirts of the manor his friends didn't have names yeah, like in the tithe scenes in mm-hmm. this book, you see him talking to friends and ha- and having fun, mm-hmm. but they don't even have names. Yeah, and they kind of blame that on like the book positions it on Feyre not taking the time to learn their names, but it's also because I mean they weren't there before; they weren't important enough to have names because I don't think that they're actually friends. They are all just Tamlin subjects, right? So Lucian and Alice are the only people, right? And both of them work for Tamlin. Right. Upon rereading, these differences almost seemed chronological. Feudal system, spring court, Tamlin versus cosmopolitan, modern, progressive, progressive city. Right. You know, with Resand and the night court. Right. But then again, there's like this veneer of like... Pharaoh only knows that side of the night court. That's not what everyone else sees. Everyone else right. sees the court of nightmares and the hewn city is. That's what the night court is like. Yeah. But still kind of like a city and I don't know. Yeah. The night, the court of nightmares is kind of a strange juxtaposition to Valaris. It's kind of like that utopian space is only available if it's completely cut off right. from everyone else. Like yeah. the only reason that utopia exists is because not everyone has access to it. It's like isolationism. Yeah. 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 It's also interesting because it's like the exact opposite of what Feyre did. Like going back to the utilitarianism, like Resand is like, sorry, rest of the world. Like I got to protect my my small piece of greatness at all costs, even if it means everyone else dies. I don't know how to feel about that now that I've said yeah. that out loud. Yeah. <laughs> I have yeah, some feelings about Reese too that we can talk about later. It's things are more gray area for me now yeah i still love the book but there's just so many interesting places where there's murkiness upon right. a second like look right agreed 
Coming off of this world-building night court spring court juxtaposition, readers then follow the same journey as Feyre to an extent because as we become more familiar with Prithian, as we become members of the night court while Feyre becomes a member of the night court, then the night court is the place that like their way of doing things and relating and organizing becomes the gold standard to which we compare the other rulers and places and ways of relating without perhaps critiquing the night court and thinking right. critically about the night court's way of operating. Feyre mentions that, but then doesn't actually grapple with it and take a stand on various things like resand condoning to- torture, Asriel's truth teller knife, that sort of thing. The idea about what he had to do to save Valaris. Do the means justify the ends? And there's just kind of this tacit acceptance that yes. So I don't, that's just something else that came to mind when I was reading it. Yeah. And the summer court world building struck me as like a Mediterranean port city like Marseille or Dubrovnik or Venice or Naples. Then that got me thinking that it's actually like pretty Eurocentric. Even the spring court's feudal system, Europe. But are you surprised? No, no, not at all. It was just, I'm just thinking it bears saying. Oh, right. And then also why it's so, so, so important to diversify your TBR and to be reading pieces by Tomi Adeyemi that uses Lagos and um, Western Africa as inspiration for the world building. Right. Natasha um, and Young and right. Kong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's nice to see somewhere else not so, like, white. <laughs> Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. So let's talk about the mating bond. Yes. We've been waiting so long. I know, and I'm, like, really excited about it. So on page 172, Feyre is talking to the carver, and she says, there was only that bond in the darkness. And every time I read that, I'm like, because it was Rhysand. <laughs> because you're mated, goddammit. <laughs> and I'm like, how did you not realize? Like, Feyre, get it together. <laughs> it's really smart, honestly, of Rhysand to hide that. Yeah. I respect that decision. Uh, yeah, we have feelings about that too. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that later. But the the she thinks it's the promise, the tattoo, like the bargain. Right. Mm-hmm. And they use that later when they're at Highburn, mm-hmm. where he thinks he's destroying the bond, but it's really just like their promise thing, whatever it is. But at the same time, mates can be quote unquote wrong for one another. So Rhysand talks about this with his parents. Which is really weird. I'm like, what do you mean you're mates, but you also are like terrible together? It just, the logic doesn't quite hold up, I guess, of that, this part of the world building or the magical system. I mean, I guess maybe all systems have inherent contradictions. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure I really believe in this like one true love for every person. I think I'm too old for that. Like (laughs) I've lived long enough that I'm like, that's (laughs) not possible. (laughs) Maybe we have like lots of people it's that com- could be the one per. You it's know, it's a combination of circumstances. Yeah, and exactly. Like- and maybe like Reese's parents were right for each other at a specific moment and not forever. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what to think about that. Right. And then with the whole mating bond scene with Feyre and Rhysand, there's the implication that both parties have to consent and accept but like how much is that actually able to consent when you know it's like quote-unquote predestined or like it's nature quote-unquote it's natural and here we're back to that determinism stuff yeah (laughs) it's really frustrating yeah so I don't really understand because like what are the implications of not accepting the bond I think I've read other books where they do something similar and they're like 
some pretty tough implications for not accepting. So I don't know if there are any in this world. Like if you decide not to do that, then what? Yeah, it kind of comes across as like there's this biologically determined way Mm -hmm. of being monogamous. And I think that's just as far as on a species level, fundamentally not true as evolutionarily. Right. It would make more sense to be with lots of people. Yeah, because the whole point of existing on an evolutionary level is to like perpetuate the species. Yeah. Except for now because there's too many of us. Yeah. yeah. I don't think we're going to be able to resolve this. We just are acknowledging that it's a question. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe like made it more difficult by our cynicism in the concept of like one true love. Listeners, come at us. Let us know what you think. Yeah, it's fine. At least where Moore is concerned, she talks about a female phase power unlocking with their first period. And I'm wondering where does that leave everyone else on the gender spectrum? Is that a question for me to field? Sure. Yeah, like why no, not? You why? <laughs> God damn it. It's like really it was like a really frustrating question because I'm like, well, one, where does that leave male fay? Like when do their power like when do they come into their powers? Puberty and apparently magic is attached to puberty yeah. in some way. But also somehow your gender? I don't know. When I read this again because like obviously this is not the first time I've read this, I was like, oh, huh. I don't I don't have good feelings about no it. No gracias. Yeah. <laughs> no gracias. <laughs> it leaves other people on the gender spectrum in a very like limbo in limbo, yeah. you know. Cuz puberty is going to function differently for people of different like assigned different sexes at birth mm-hmm. and of different genders. Yeah. Another big part of the magical system that we hear more about in this book is the cauldron Mm -hmm. as this source of primordial magic almost. And then or as the it's like an origin story. Yes. Like the world is created from the cauldron. It's like the Big Bang, but the cauldron existed before everything. Yeah, it's my whole. Yeah. Like, I don't understand how that works kind of thing. Right. You You kind of have to suspend disbelief to a certain extent in order for that to work. Yeah, because what was there before the Big Bang or the cauldron? What exists before everything. What creates the cauldron. Right. How do things come into existence? Yeah, exactly. Like, that's pretty hard to grapple with. No one knows the answer, really. Big Bang, I guess. I don't, at least. We see the cauldron. It was shattered or the legs of the cauldron were off and then they were put back together. And that's Mm -hmm. what the King of Hybern has been doing by raiding the different temples. Also makes a lot of sense that the cauldron is an origin story and is then related to the religious institutions, Mm -hmm. like that it's part of the temple. Right. There's also this implication that magic can be depleted and then the cauldron has to like rest up or prepare or something like that. And then we get that with like Nesta when she gets turned taking something yeah which is also kind of strange because it's the thing that created the universe why does it need like to rest if it's all energy and all like potentiality but it shows that energy can be depleted so maybe it's like actually acknowledging that entropy is a thing (laughs) yeah yeah well and i guess it kind of is like maybe some commentary on religion in general where like you can't have an all a god who is all good if they create evil things so like maybe it's showing like those dichotomies can't exist in actuality like with the way we use language so right and how ethics then like how do you use the tools that are at your disposal makes a big difference yes so i guess i kind of get it i'm here for it i take it back (laughs) you take it back (laughs) you've changed my mind have i i was just putting questions out there on the table it helped me to change my mind okay cool (laughs) 
The last thing I want to mention about magic in this particular novel is that strong female protagonists learning about themselves and their magical powers is most definitely an SJM central theme. Oh my God, yeah. It similar thing happens in Throne of Glass. And I just love these types of stories. I find them really inspiring. Yeah, I really like them. Find your magic, yeah. cultivate your magic. My horoscope actually said that to me. Oh, nice. For this full moon cycle. Nice. I really like it because we also see these like female. So not so much in Throne of Glass because I feel like, what's her name? Selena slash yes. no spoilers. Yeah. Um, I feel like she's super badass to begin with. But like we really see Pharaoh like become strong i mean i guess she's kind of strong to begin with like she's like in the wilderness hunting down animals for her family yeah selena already knows how to fight because she's an assassin yeah right but then we see Feyre learn how to fight cue montage scenes which oh, i love yeah you love a montage <laughs> you just rolled your eyes so hard at me <laughs> i have a real problem with that i don't know when i'm doing it <laughs> um and then um so she learns Feyre both learns how to fight which she didn't know about before and then about her like actual magical powers right. yeah which i really love and i love seeing like a female protagonist become like strong and like start killing people i'm like yeah you do that <laughs> Maybe that's part of the reason why we like these sorts of stories so much. This is like a YA common central theme, I would say. For sure. For sure. Wands away. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil. Or if you're Jesse, good versus eagle. In our segment, (laughs) Get Me Kylo Ren. One thing that stood out to me plain as day on this reread is how female sexuality is portrayed as predatory. And we have Ianthe and Amarantha Mm -hmm. as the two big examples of this. And this falls into gendered stereotypes about bad or villainous women, which we, I think we've mentioned before on the podcast Mm -hmm. about how they manipulate, they indoctrinate like Ianthe, like using religious doctrine Mm -hmm. or getting into Feyre's head by telling her about all these different roles she has to play. Um, they deceive, they poison, they set traps, they weaponize their sexuality. It was just so, so apparent to me on right. this reread. Yeah. No, I 100% agree. I think that both of them are really good villains and that we don't yeah. get a lot of female villains. And it turns out that, like, neither of them are the big bad villain. Like, they're not as bad as Highburn, I guess. But I that's the thing is that the book dedicates so much time to... I guess, laying out and fleshing out what their villainy consists of and how it does fall. All of it falls into these or most of it falls into these gendered stereotypes versus the King of Highburn's villainy doesn't get, I guess, as much airtime. It's architecting the entire thing, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't. It seems more natural. It's like the book is almost positioning female villainy as unnatural. Hmm. Like, females with power as unnatural. That's why it's so weird when Feyre becomes High Lady. And it, that, like, blows everyone's mind when they find that out. Or why it was so weird for Rhysand to promote females to his inner circle. Mm-hmm. Or why it was Tamlin's all, like, there are no High Ladies. Right. Or maybe the book is trying to say, like, female villains are so much more successful because no one expects it of them. Yeah, like, that's we true. don't see a female, vi- like, kind of like in um, Killing Eve like love that show no yeah me too no spoilers but like they're looking for a female sociopath and we don't see that very often in media where like the female villain is the big bad person right it's a counter narrative yeah or if we do there's some 
terrible backstory about what made them a villain and we should feel bad for them and that's really what this all is and i'm like i don't feel bad for villanelle <laughs> like she she's a psychopath like she enjoys killing people and i don't feel bad for ianthe or amarantha they're they're up there resand approves of torture this doesn't get me Kylo Ren because I was grappling with this and didn't really know where to put it. And so here it is. Torture is part of Asriel's job. Right. That is why he has a knife called Truth Teller. I was surprised that this didn't really bother me the first time I read it. I was reflecting on my first read experience mm-hmm. on the second read. And I was like, oh, wow, this did not bother me at all in the first the first time I read it. And now I find it more bothersome. Not, not because I can't see violence as one tactic of many. Diversity of tactics is important. But like when that one tactic is deployed by the strongest people with the most power against those who have less power, I think that's pretty messed up. Like in the context of the power dynamics that this novel shows. Mm-hmm. So there's just all this talk in the novel about how Resand is the most powerful Hawaii Lord ever. And Asriel and Cassian are both like the most powerful Illyrians ever. And Asriel's a shatter singer and he's so good at his spying job. And the night court's the most powerful court. And it's, and then the inner circle is super powerful because Amran is like, who knows what she is and more. We don't even know about her power for the majority of the book right. because it's like so powerful or some shit. And, <laughs> and then they have Feyre now. Yeah. And they have Feyre. We don't even know what, how much power she has yet. And then, so I was reading this part. I was just kind of struck by how Feyre notices the condoning of torture as troubling. Like she, mm-hmm. she's, you know, wants to find out what they did the at the Ator, Ador, whatever. Because we see the story through Faber's perspective and she doesn't really finish grappling with this. I kind mm-hmm. of mentioned this earlier, but it's just like an out of sight, out of mind sort of thing. We're moving on to other more interesting parts of the story. Her in- interest is captured by other things she has to do with the plot. But it just kind of reminds me how the CIA is running black ops and using torture techniques like waterboarding while at the same time maintaining this front of like... Right the great liberating force in the world i don't know it just seems like there's a, t- a little bit of an implication that resand is similar mm-hmm. but th- then you have to add on the facade of being the worst ever but we're then supposed to know that he's not the worst ever and then that's all like a ruse it's confusing to me yeah you know i had i did not think about this for one second when i read it how are you doing now oh fine <laughs> <laughs> did i blow your mind a little. I think it's hard for me sometimes when I'm like, well, is it for the best that they do this? For the greater good? For the greater Grindelwald. good. Oh, which I hate. Because that's some like serious Dumbledore shit right yeah, there. Is. Who I hate. But it's like, that's some true utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. Like, we'll kill Harry. Well, well, spoilers. It's like 10 years old. Like, if this is spoiling, <laughs> that's a spoiler you, I don't for... feel bad no. now. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's too late. Um yeah, I don't know how to feel about this because I'm obviously not on board with our government torturing people. But for some reason within the confines of this book, I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Maybe because the adder is like terrible and I'm like, yeah, kill it, you know? When I was thinking about this, kind of just got myself all confused. And I, I think that the novel wants us to do what Feyre does mm-hmm. and wants us to brush past it because we see everything through her perspective. So we're kind of like supposed to follow her thought processes right. on a lot of things. But this just seemed like a, a a very gray area. Yeah. But she almost kind of like comes back to the torture part because in that scene where um, Highburn has invaded Valaris and she like 
winnows to the adder and is like stabbing it multiple times and like this is for resand this is for what at lucian or whatever right. i don't remember but like that's kind of that's a little torturous like, i'd say quite literally the definition of overkill yeah like is what that is just i mean like just kill it like you don't need to draw enjoy it yeah she enjoys it yeah to a certain degree or feels like it's necessary mm-hmm. as some sort of retribution or vengeance or yeah. something i mean i guess she feels like the adder deserves the pain for all the pain that it has caused and i respect that in a in a, in a way but also I'm like that's a little much yeah but it fits in with her character because she does seem to like i don't think she was like a soft character to begin with like she's not elaine so she, she was never like gonna be a gardener and taking care of flat like she paints and i think that's supposed to be her soft side but i don't hunter with an artist's soul she says that at some point in the book right yeah but i don't think we were ever supposed to see her as like an elaine like soft character so maybe it makes sense maybe it's not that much of like an overreach for her character I think under Get Me Kylo Ren, we have to talk about the Hewn City and the Court of Nightmares a little bit more. Okay. And how it is very patriarchal, very hierarchical. So this is positioned in the novel as villainous, as evil. And about, it's essentially sex slavery, more or less, Mm -hmm. for the females in the court. And there's this obsession with like, breeding power right we see that in the court of nightmares but then also we we see that with the illyrians also Mm -hmm. um so like there's this strange not strange i guess it makes sense but this almost like not eugenics but kind of similar troubling obsession with purity and breeding power and like anytime you talk about like breeding a superior race like that's just hitlery yeah yeah (laughs) hitlery (laughs) which is clearly belongs in Uh get me kylo ren yeah it's a terrible place but it's also interesting that sarah j mass sets it up as the as kind of like the place where pharaoh realizes she has like a very strong sexual attraction to resand yeah it's almost this like domineering Mm -hmm. there are some serious dom sub vibes yeah yeah in that scene that I wasn't really thinking about until you just mentioned this. And I didn't think about it until you just said that. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Are you ready to talk about prisons? I'm ready. Let's do it. So the bone carver, etc., is in the prison on an island that's in the night court's domain, but Rhysand said that he doesn't actually have power over it because it's like the prison itself has power. Right. Prisons don't just exist before governments exist and also it's a prison you can never leave the prison itself decides the sentence there's no like parole board or something yeah no because Rhysand talks about how like he doesn't put people there lightly because once they're in they can never leave it's like an Azkaban type place yeah but at least Azkaban has like sentences yeah like not lifetime I mean for some people but and, and just, like, the fact that Rhysand just says, like, oh, yeah, they're bad. They belong there. Mm-hmm. Except for, I guess, we know Amran left. Amran got out. So then if Amran was fine yeah. and is, like, okay, then who wants to say that all of those other creatures in there, like, why do they necessarily deserve to be in there? And just because the system exists, no one questions its validity. We also don't learn why anyone is in there. No. 
which is also kind of strange. Because they're just like inherently bad. Like the bone carver's instincts are just bad or Mm -hmm. something. It just wants bad stuff. I don't know. But who determines that? The prison itself. But that's kind of like just passing the buck. This is too slippery for me. This doesn't work for me. Yeah. There's something I want to say, but it's a spoiler. So... Well, I know about the... Yeah. We learn more about the prison and it functions differently in Akawar. Yeah. And I don't actually 100% understand it still, even after reading Akawar, but I've only read it once. So maybe... We'll, just... we'll pay attention on the reread and yeah. we'll pick this thread back up. Yes. Okay. Sounds good. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, and gender, and lots of other things, as this segment will attest. <laughs> This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. You wanted to start off with gender on this one. This book is super binary. I put a bunch of U's and P's and R's in the super. (laughs) Just like really big distinction between who is male and female. Like we don't have anyone who does not identify as male or female. I'm just like, cool, 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 cool. Not really here for it. One thing that came up to me that I think could go in gender or in race is Amran mm-hmm. as a potential example of like body dysphoria mm-hmm. because she's not what her body makes it look like she is. That's true. And I don't want to collapse this into like transness mm-hmm. because it doesn't seem like she has gender dysphoria. No. But it, she could have been a different gender or had no gender in her mm-hmm. previous form or maybe that was like a soup maybe there was female femininity or whatever in her whatever being she used to be right but that was the only tiny sliver yeah and maybe possibly the adder because they call the adder it which is not <laughs> something you should call a person but i don't think the adder is assigned a gender <laughs> Feyre and her concerns about what people think of her if she's with Rhysand too soon after Tamlin. I was just like, this is some misogynistic bullshit. Who cares? One, Tamlin is terrible and he was gaslighting you and like this was like an emotionally abusive relationship. Like who cares that you're not with him anymore? Like just tell everyone how terrible he is. Like ruin his reputation forever. And there were some like Helen of Troy vibes with oh, yeah. the summer court. Like we might have to go to war if the spring court talks to us because you were his bride or whatever the fuck. I know. Way to like embrace the patriarchy, whatever her name Women was. Women as possessions. Yeah. But that was that that woman. Yeah. In his, the summer court. His cousin. I don't remember her Tarquin's name. Tarquin's cousin. Yeah. I don't remember her name. But either way, I'm like. Cress- cr- cr- Cressida. Cressida. Yeah. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? Like, shouldn't you, like, show some allyship here and, like, be on Sometimes side? women can be the worst. Yeah. That's why white women are dangerous. Mm-hmm. Read the Rachel Cargill. <laughs> Although, technically, <laughs> that court has dark skin. I know. I feel complicated about that. I feel and it very, might be in race. <laughs> I feel very complicated about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Fair, anyways. Feyre, just be with whomever you decide. And... Yeah. Even if that's not Tamlin or Rhysand. <laughs> Even if that's yourself. Yeah. Yeah, just be with yourself. Maybe she just needs some alone time. <laughs> On page 26, Tamlin says, High lords only take wives, consorts. There has never been a high lady. 
So I feel like the courts are refusing equitable treatment between male and female fae because the High Lords don't want to lose their power. Mm -hmm. Um, All of their past relationships have had a power dynamic. High Lord's sons take over for them. Yeah, just like not even questioned. They just seems to be the biological, natural way of right. things. You can just smell when a High Lord's son yeah. comes to like magical slash sexual maturity. <laughs> it's weird. But it doesn't like account for the like what happens if the High Lords don't have sons. What if they only have daughters or no children at all? So obviously there can be High Ladies because Farrah becomes one, but that's still up to Rhysand's discretion to make her a High Lady. Right, what gives permission or yeah. allows that sort of difference in power to happen. So we end up like with another super patriarchal society. Major with, eye roll. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm eye rolling, but I probably am. You just did. <laughs> it was really annoying. Not here for it. One thing that really came up for me is because we spend so much time in the night court and learn about Resand and Cassian and Asriel, this trio then, I think, comes to encapsulate different versions of masculinity to aspire to. Mm-hmm. So these are our aspirational models of masculinity. You can have the quiet, broody one that's Asriel that's been through so much and everyone's been through so much. You know what I mean? Everyone's like so tortured and <laughs> like quite literally he yeah. was tortured by his... And now does the Brothers, torturing. And now does the torturing. Yeah, that's some sort of like vicious cycle of abuse shit. Resand is powerful, but doesn't want to be too powerful, but does want to be powerful, but doesn't want people to fear him all the time, but does kind of. And then Cassian being like the super strong fighter, but diffusing things with humor. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think we just see there's so many different kinds of masculinity that show up. But right. these are like, so we're supposed to stand these characters because yeah. they're our inner circle too, because we're coming from Favor's perspective, right? Right. Well, and I think uh, we kind of talked about last time how uh, we see like the difference between Tamlin and Resand, where Tamlin yes. is like very like overly masculine, and then Resand's kind of like more feminized masculinity. Yes, that's a good point. So we also kind of get like mm, I don't want to say a spectrum of masculinity, but we do get like varying degrees of like. Mm, how masculine their masculinity is <laughs> but at the same time they're all super hot they're yeah. all tatted yeah. they're all super buff they're so all like really good at come true <laughs> they're all really good at fighting <laughs> all the things i want in a person right i appreciate that but that's also like a very ableist and yeah. kind of like body limiting not like body expansive yeah. sort of way of thinking about things i don't it just kind of it falls into stereotypes of masculinity i guess yeah well and we see that a lot like in the um, when Feyre and Elaine and Nesta are all made like from the cauldron or not not in Feyre's case but like they become slimmer their legs are longer their skin is glo- like all glowier <laughs> glow up yeah like a literal I'm guessing they get taller like because their legs are longer now. they just have this like ethereal like super human liveness yeah live <laughs> is the perfect word <laughs> and I'm just like cool 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 uh not really here for that but especially because like all of them are described as like fairly conventionally feminine yeah to begin with like Feyre is the outlier in there but mostly because she's like I'm not gonna take a bath because I'm gonna go hunting again anyways like yeah it's just kind of weird Maybe that body stuff doesn't belong in gender, but I'm just going to keep it there. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it comes back to your first point about how it's super binary. Yeah. And in reality, these roles, the like binary gender roles, they're not throwing that out the window. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of subverting it sometimes when it's right. relevant. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like the feminized version of masculinity for Resand, but only in juxtaposition to Tamlin. If mm-hmm. we take Tamlin out of the equation, Resand is then this aspirational figure of masculinity. Right. And, or then there's nothing to compare to, right? Because so mm-hmm. like we see Resand really sense, like but... crying, but it's like a tear, you know? <laughs> and I'm just like... A very manly tear. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know, Deuce can cry too. Like everyone cries. Like just let him do it right you know? what is i think important to recognize is with these novels they're not throwing those gender roles out the no. window they're just like favor wears pants sometimes yeah there can yeah. be high ladies also yeah but it's not being like fuck these gender roles yeah which is also interesting because once she gets to valera she wears dresses more often oh my god you're totally right and even though like when she was in the spring court she was like i want some fucking pants like i don't want to wear dresses but then like maybe it's supposed to be her like coming into who she wants to be like she can be both like wear pants and be vicious and fight but also be feminine and look pretty or whatever whatever people feel when they wear dresses (laughs) (laughs) are you ready to talk about class i'm always ready to talk about (laughs) class you know that about me so i feel like the tithe really highlights the initial class and wealth difference between feyre and tamlin as well as the terrible notion that because something was done a certain way in the past it must continue in the same way as if we shouldn't just like burn it all to the ground and start over and do something different we fucked up let's try again yeah so what like what does tamlin need all those things for Uh, it makes no logical sense no he says it's for taking care of the guards estate etc but unless he is selling those things back to the people after the tithe like after they gave them to him i don't even understand how this could be helpful it seems like it's again this like chronological shift like a jump in time between resand and the night court and the way the spring court does things it's like this feudal logic of the Lord gets this tithe or mm-hmm. taxes in exchange for protection, but he couldn't even protect his other people slash what is there to protect them from right now? It right. seems like. Especially when he's like, yeah, let me let Highburn just walk through here. Into yeah, the human land. exactly. And especially not after taking into account that, oh, yeah, I should hit the fan for like 50 years and I'm going to reinstate the tithe immediately upon when I get freed. Not only that, you couldn't protect them for 50 years and you're like, yeah, you guys owe me some money. Yeah. And you're like, no, actually, you owe us because you didn't do your job. You didn't fulfill your part of this feudal bargain. Oh, that's the worst. And obviously, I'm a person who believes in taxes because I think they can help people like. Yeah. Tax the rich. School. Yeah. Like all those things. Tax the rich. Tamlin should be paying for everyone else's stuff. But he's also not providing the services that taxes should help with. So like, fuck them. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, and what are you doing with the things? Like, people are giving him, like, cloth or jelly. or I'm, like, I'm just like, how how is this helpful? Or, like, they have nothing to eat. The wraiths have nothing to eat. And so they can't give them anything. Yeah. And, like, he's going to hunt them down and kill them. You have to pay your taxes upon pain of death. Yeah. But also, what are you taxing them on? They don't have anything to be taxed. Right. You're not giving them anything. Like, their taxes aren't going towards anything. Right. They're just going towards, like, this hoarding of wealth yeah it was very frustrating there is a kind of a big class difference between cassie and azrael azrael and resand i don't think we see how that like really plays out because i think we're supposed to see resand as a high lord who treats everyone the same like an i don't see color yeah (laughs) bullshit um but it's interesting to see like the interactions between the three of them as they represent like very different, like differing degrees of class. Cause Cassian got nothing. 
Mm-hmm. And Asriel grew up in his lord dad's house, but was like a prisoner, tortured and left in the basement yeah. or whatever, not to see light or... Set on fire by his half-brothers. Yeah. So like access to more resources, but in exchange for being tortured the entire first decade of your life. Yeah. And then Resand that had a pretty cushy upbringing and with respect to those other two experiences, let's be real. Yeah, with the exception of having to go like live in the Illyrian war camps. But his mom still went with him and he's still at a house. And his mom still made him dinner afterwards. But it's also like like peak child abuse. Like (laughs) they're just like breaking bones and like beating these kids and making them fight and stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck are you guys doing? And then Azriel and Cassian and Resand are like, glad I did that. And I'm like, I'm better for it. It reminds me of the like got shit with Sansa being like I would still be a little bird if all that shit hadn't happened to me I don't know like I think it's pretty hard to justify terror or torture and rape and abuse as someone who has experienced child abuse like been on the receiving end of that I cannot imagine being like yeah I was fine I'm glad that happened it made me into the person I am today like it's just such problematic logic yeah for sure because like every experience makes you into the person you are but that doesn't mean those bad experiences are helpful to you in any way it's almost like retroactively justifying it or legitimating it yeah which is really messed up yeah these people need some therapy everyone in this book needs therapy (laughs) yes along those same lines cassian went hungry as a child and so did Mm Feyre. and they're the only two beings in this world that we've seen so far in this series that understand what that's like right well, actually, I take that back. We saw people in the spring court being like, no, we're too hungry. We're su- we're starving. We're hungry. We can't pay your tithe. Especially when you take that into account with uh, going to the Hume City and seeing food like sitting out just to be shown. I can't imagine being someone who had like gone hungry for so many years and then having to like live with people being mm-hmm. like blatantly wasteful. Right. Yeah. Apparently, that's also an issue. Uh, just kind of is like how in our contemporary empirical world there is enough wealth so everyone can have what they need right just some people need to give up an enormous amount of theirs so there's a lot of problems that aren't getting solved Mm -hmm. that seemed like would be solved by redistribution of wealth in prithian maybe we'll see that more in future books because resand does say something about like wanting to change like the dynamics between the higher and lower yeah well it's like kind of like i'll talk like you're the high lord just do it right yeah (laughs) but maybe maybe in future books i don't know i think this goes under class too the whole bastards quote unquote get nothing Mm -hmm. that i guess legitimacy within the institution of marriage is what gives people access to family wealth right. and standing and like that social capital that comes along with it. Agreed. Also, who cares? It's your fucking kid. Just take care of them. Right. One thing that I would say is redeeming about this book um, is that Resand and the Inner Circle are shaking up traditional power hierarchies. Mm-hmm. Resand talks about this. He's half Haife and half Illyrian. So he's this like he calls him people have called him like a half breed and mm-hmm. didn't accept him for that. Wasn't accepted by Haife because of his Illyrian part. Wasn't accepted by the Illyrians because of his Haife part. And then Cassian and Azriel are quote unquote bastards. More escape from the court of nightmares and sexual slavery and she's a woman. Amran looks like a woman but is something else entirely. 
and Faye is also something else, but also in a woman like a Faye female body. Then she becomes High Lady. So these are, because Prithian was so bass backwards, these are all big changes. Right. They have come a long way from how bad it used to be, at least in this particular aspect. Right. Oh, I agree. Especially when you think about, I think more is Rhysand's second, right? Amran's the second. Amran's the third. Yeah. So he also has like chosen women to be the people in position of power if something were to happen to him. Well, and then also by making Feyre High Lady, I'm guessing she's actually the next person to be in charge, mm-hmm. which I'm like, mm, monarchies being what they are, maybe get rid of them. But yeah. all in all, Rhysand seems like a pretty good dude. So I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> okay. He's hot. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> That's what the novel wants you to do. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about race. Yeah. Okay. So this book has no POCs question mark. Uh, The Illyrians are described as tan. So I don't know if that's supposed to be similar to like golden skinned. The summer court, I guess. They'll have dark skin. And blonde hair. I think it was white or silver hair. Yeah. And light eyes. Yeah, the it's the light eyes that get me, but I do think there are a people in oh, I don't know where who are black with blue eyes and like white blonde hair, and that's they're black people. So I'm like really confused about what the Illyrians slash the Summer Court are supposed to look like. It almost seems like taking the dark skin because that's an admirable quality mm-hmm. and putting it on characters that otherwise are white. Yeah, because like. I did look up like artwork for the summer court and people often draw them as being black, which I'm like, cool. But also at the same time, I'm like, it doesn't mention natural hair. Oh yeah. Their hair might be a giveaway. Like they all, I'm going to guess have straight hair. Otherwise it would have been mentioned. Yeah. And like the Illyrians are similar in color to Sand, who became pale under the mountains. So I'm like, is that because... Resand is like half high fay. Like he's kind of like biracial, which I also didn't put together until right now. Oh yeah, I didn't think about that until right now. And I'm like a biracial person, but I was like, I just assumed they all kind of look similar. But like his biracialness, biraciality, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> doesn't seem particularly salient, right, all the time. Yes. Like he is racialized similarly to most other people and he can hide the main thing that marks him as biracial. He can hide his wings. Right. So that would be the main like sign flashing red light. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm biracial because he has the pointed ears. Yeah. And he's like tan, but obviously the summer court's tan. I'm guessing the spring, like I think Tamlin's described as having golden skin. I'm like, fuck off. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. So this all points to a bigger issue in both YA fantasy and romance where authors and characters are all white, which can be like super frustrating to me. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing that changing a little bit. Yeah. We're going to link to an article called 50 Shades of White from The Guardian. And it's a really good article about mm, whiteness in romance novels. But I think it really applies to YA fantasy as well. And I think YA is doing a really good job. And romance is also changing. But mm, it's just like... It's a lot of white, mm-hmm. a lot of white people. I'm glad that you brought up the Illyrians because I think there's some troubling similarities between how the Illyrians are depicted and harmful stereotypes that settler colonialism perpetuates about indigenous peoples. So here's a few that I noticed. Illyrians live in 
tribes, quote unquote, and war bands that fight amongst one another. So this gave me like some Sparta vibes, but also like one stereotype that gets blown out of proportion and taken out of context is the indigenous tribes fighting against one another. As if um, white people don't fight each other like every day for like all of history. As if like <laughs> if anyone's taken a history class in like our super Eurocentric yeah. school system, like that's what you learn about the entire fucking yeah. class. Europeans have been doing that for like ever. But for some reason, the fact that black or brown indigenous people slash indigenous people are doing it is like justifying this quote unquote like white civilizing force. Right. I think the Illyrians, in order to describe them, it's falling back on some of these tropes about indigenous people mm-hmm. that are pretty harmful stereotypes. As far as the alluring treatment of females, that's one reason they are called barbaric, quote unquote, and savage, mm-hmm. quote unquote, which let's be honest, aren't anywhere close to neutral terms. No. Like those have been deployed in specific Eurocentrics, white supremacist, settler colonialist, patriarchal power dynamics yeah. that structure our contemporary world. Mm-hmm. Like those are very loaded terms. And using them isn't neutral, I don't think. So that is kind of seems loaded to me a little bit. And then also the clipping the Illyrian's females' wings when they get their period reminded me of FGM, Mm -hmm. which is horrible, of course. But like, this is just so complicated and tied up in colonialism. Right. And part of it is difficult, I think, to talk about because I'm not sure Sarah J. Mass is the person to be like leading these discussions. Right. And I feel that way, I guess... When we're talking about race, like the people in the discussion should probably be people from those communities, which makes it difficult when Mm -hmm. we see it like thrust into the lens of whiteness. And especially when they have like, in this case with Sarah J. Mass, have like muddied the waters and like in the case of like, what do the Illyrians look like? What do the summer court look like? Like, are they brown people or or are they tan white people? Like, those uh-huh. things are, like, very complicated in this world where, like, whiteness is assumed. Absolutely. It's just so gr- – such a gray <laughs> areas now that Maybe I'm – Maybe that's this whole book. It's just yeah. one big gray mess. <laughs> <laughs> that is also pleasurable to read. Yes, and I love it. But also I get mad. <laughs> I can be mad and love something, right? Exactly. So Reese presents the idea to Pharaoh that there are different types of darkness and not all of them are bad. This is very different than most depictions we get of darkness in many YA books. Um, Reese is often described as darkness incarnate and he is not a villain. And I kind of appreciated this. Totes. Even though I'm kind of like, Tomi Adeyemi does a really good job with this with Children in Blood and Bone. Like obviously black people and black things are not bad, but often we get these like, the darkling like anything that is dark and black and i don't know equals evil yeah equals evil and this is like scary yeah so like the night court you of course think that's going to be evil but then it turns out like spring where tamlin is healthy and it's a sunny it's a nice revindication on a metaphorical level Mm -hmm. but not on like an (laughs) actual representational level exactly metaphorically i'm like yeah thank you for not making black things bad exactly like darkness is good on a metaphorical level and then the night court is like a white european cosmopolitan place but also has like these like dual cities where like valaris right yep and then court of nightmares literally Uh dark things is like the bad part right yeah so i guess on a metaphorical level that's good but there isn't a lot of meaningful 
untangling what that means Mm -hmm. as far as actual representation i mean there's some discussions where the novel talks about race in a more critical way and Mm -hmm. i'm thinking specifically about recent tarquin wanting to change the way the quote-unquote high fae are the only ones who rule prithian Mm -hmm. so tarquin wants to like upset and disrupt this idea that lesser fae are actually lesser Mm -hmm. and wants them to have representation in government but at the same time doesn't seem like either reese or tarquin are actually talking about giving up power and privilege in order to make that change happen yes so like all talk no action well yeah because they want to keep their power exactly but also like both of you might be happier without it and what I thought was actually interesting, to use a word, our favorite <laughs> word that we haven't used in a while, was that when Tarquin is talking about this to Feyre on the ship, on their like little pleasure cruise or whatever they're doing in the bay of the summer court, is he's talking about, he talks about this as class, which is kind of telling in the fact that race and class are so tied together in these novels. Right. The people who have power and money are the high fae, which are like, analogous to white people essentially you ready to talk about minds and bodies let's do it bodies and minds mind bodies body minds minds. (laughs) so we get Feyre dealing with ptsd but maybe one of the more like serious versions of ptsd we've seen in like a ya novel where like what she has been dealing with was actually like really really bad like war levels of bad yeah you're right i appreciate how sjm shows i just started using her initials it's fine um we're that close <laughs> bffs we're tight um i appreciate how she shows that communication is essential mm-hmm. in building a support network and in healing from trauma everyone in the inner circle except amran seems to practice more or less open communication about topics we don't often see characters grappling with in super candid ways in YA. Right. Yeah, I agree. Especially because we see that as very different from what was going on in the Spring Court where Tamlin did not want to talk about it. He was just mm-hmm. like, it's fine. We're fine. Everything's good. Right. Just pretending. It is really revindicating then this action of vulnerability, mm-hmm. of opening yourself up, of talking about your problems, of being vulnerable, and that that's how healing starts. That's right. how support network is cultivated. Yeah. I appreciated that. Definitely. At one point, Reese tells Feyre about this trauma, that either you let your baggage destroy you, I think he probably uses a different word than baggage, or you learn to live with it. This struck me as a sort of lean-in approach to mental health and healing from trauma that doesn't really take privilege into account, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, how are you letting your baggage destroy you if you don't have access to resources you need or if you're isolated or if you have to work all the time it just seemed like a little bit of a limited view yeah i would agree with that healing and privilege is an important discussion who has who has the time and space in order to be able to learn to live with it quote unquote Mm -hmm. like there are other support systems in place that let people do that or that like facilitate that and make it easier yeah and one of those things is affordability also like yeah because reese is wealthy and tamlin is well like if they lived in a world where therapists existed, they would be able to afford it. Whereas Pharaoh, nev- like her traumatizing childhood, like she wouldn't be able to afford therapy to help with that. Right. And especially if there's no universal health care, no one would be able to. <laughs> yeah. Pharaoh wouldn't be able to have access to any sort of the things that she needs. Yeah. And she probably needs a lot of those things, yeah. actually. Yeah, she really does. <laughs> 
So on page 28, Lucian says he's giving you as much free reign as he can talking about Tamlin, which is such bullshit. For some reason, whatever Tamlin wants is the only thing that's possible in the spring court. But Tamlin is physically controlling when she can go places and who she can go with. This is in direct opposition to how Feyre is treated at the night court where she has the freedom to do what she wants and see who she wants. And she's always part of the decision making process. Yep. She always has a choice. Yeah. Which Rhysand like says over and over again, like, it's your choice. Like, what do you want to do? I'm not going to hide things from, you know, like all those things. When he does. Okay. okay yeah. <laughs> he definitely does. I'm he more can be con- a little manipulative. I'm more conflicted about Rhysand than I used to be. Which is very sad. <laughs> it's a mourning process I'm going through right I'm now. I'm so sorry. But this, this, this must be hard for you. This processing is good. Yeah. But I get so annoyed with Lucian, like in this book, how he's just like, he like cowers to whatever Tamlin wants. I mean, he's that's the only place where he's felt like he can belong. He's been ostracized from his entire family. I know, but I'm like, do you really belong if you have no choice in what you're doing? Not really. You don't. But, but it's like a survival mechanism, I yeah. think. Yeah. He should have gone to a different court. <laughs> he should just move. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> um, that I think gets to the larger point about how it's difficult to realize that other people's feelings aren't necessarily our responsibility. Yeah. Very important. Very. Very salient. <laughs> other people's feelings are valid, but not your responsibility. And that's a hard thing to navigate sometimes. Tamlin literally locks Feyre in the house knowing she is like falling apart and also has like all this trauma surrounding being trapped because of being under the mountain. Does he know that she has this trauma? Because he's always like asleep whenever she has her night terrors. pretending to be asleep because he doesn't want to deal with it. Like if you hear your partner puking in the bathroom like that is connected to your bedroom, who sleeps through that? And I'm just like... Yeah, kill Tamlin. You should kill Tamlin. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't get to. Well, she tried. It was the heart of stone. Ugh, His heart was made of stone. I wish he would have died. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> this gets more complicated in Akawar, but it like, does. whatever. I fucking hate Tamlin so much. <laughs> Most of my notes were about Tamlin this time, I think. Like Tamlin versus Rhysand. Do you find that frustrating then that you don't like Tamlin, but he's taking up all of your mental energy? Yes. I'm like, (laughs) get out of my head, Tamlin. I hate you. That's probably how Feyre feels, actually. Probably. Reese said that it turned him into a monster um, and he would gladly do it again. What did? Uh, Like what he did, like to be like being the like picture of the night court to the like the outward world and all the stuff with amarantha the 50 years of sexual abuse yeah um and i really thought this was like a good look at what we're willing to do to protect the people we love and i feel like really bad for resand which i think this book does a lot of like making you feel bad for him and his situation because we get that through favor's perspective and she's always like look at all the things he's done look at all yeah. of the things he's suffered look at how yeah. far he's come look at how burdened he is look which is how... like kind of true which is true but it's a little heavy-handed yeah it is a little heavy-handed but i was really just like huh we will do some really bad stuff like when we love someone to like protect them yeah like really bad and not even feel bad for it or like feel bad about it but not too long because otherwise it would quote let it destroy you <laughs> yeah I don't know. That just like really stuck with me for some reason. 
Probably because I would do terrible things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of like John Wick, you know? I see, I see. And so I'm like, you know, the things we do in retribution for people hurting the people we love. I'm like, I get it. There's furniture to accommodate fairies with wings. And I thought of this kind of like furniture to accommodate different body types because we see like Asriel and Kasten struggling when they're at Pharaoh's like manor house <laughs> because they don't fit into the furniture. They're human chairs. Yeah, human chairs. And I really appreciated this. I was like, oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, that's a really good point. We should build world to accommodate everyone, yeah. not make everyone fit into what already exists. Yeah. That's some bullshit. Yeah. So good for like the, the night court and all their goodness apparently right. <laughs> for doing these things so i talked about amrin as body dysphoria earlier so i'm not going to talk about that now but one thing I, about amrin that i do want to mention as far as bodies is that resand mentioned that at the beginning there were like tears between these different realms so beings like amrin and the bone carver and the weaver it's so like and probably other mem- people who are in this prison right got trapped in this particular reality so i'm wondering if there's a multiverse i'm kind of hoping there will be i love a multiverse i know you do like me too watch spider-man into the spider-verse if you have not watched it already it's so good i just watched it again last night <laughs> okay i fell asleep watching it but still i think that's rad that's a cool possibility right well and i guess um like without spoiling what happens at the end of aquar like that would have some serious implications for like possible villains in the next series like yeah half of this series with these characters well and it's kind of interesting because the multiverse whole business is kind of what ends up happening with the throne of glass series if you think about it oh right yeah i was like mm, i don't remember that but i do now like that's where the villains end up coming from spoilers <laughs> kelly loves spoilers spoiler. out of context okay <laughs> is it is it a little, i don't, I don't know we can edit it out i okay. guess you can edit it out <laughs> I don't know if I want to. Leave it if you want. It's your turn to edit. <laughs> I think you're right. And I think this will have some big implications for the next half of the series. Either that or like the other continents that are in this world. Because Nessian is the next thing, right? I think so. Yeah. Yes. I just love them. Nesta is like so broody and like sarcastic and like <sighs> mean. And I love it. Yes. I love it. Yes. It makes sense. <laughs> Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about asexuality, sexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take some liberties and do some shipping of our own. Very appreciative of Sarah J. Mass and the focus she puts on sex- female sexual pleasure. For some reason, many books seem to make that a taboo or focus solely on whether the male counterpart found- finds pleasure or has the female find pleasure and that the male finds pleasure as opposed to pleasure for pleasure's sake. That was a lot of pleasure. <laughs> so pleasurable. <laughs> but I like really appreciated that our focus was with Feyre, not with how she makes Resand feel. I would add to that and say that it seems like Resand gets pleasure from giving Feyre pleasure. Yes. Which is like pretty cool. Yeah. And a change from like what I feel like we normally see in these books. When Rissan tells Feyre his story about like everything, every I, I don't cry, obviously, but like when yeah. they're in the cabin, yeah, and when like the, it all comes out on Calen Mai, uh. <laughs> says Sarah J. Mass post fact. So I don't know if that's like a little bit of a retcon or like 
you know. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, suppose, supposedly this takes place on Kalamai, and, like, obviously that means that something's going on at the spring court with the Kalamai celebration that they have, and mm-hmm. Tamlin, like, doing his sex thing. Sex magic. <laughs> his heteronormative yeah. sex magic. Yes, which I'm like, cool sex magic, I guess, like, if that's what you want to do, but also, like, it's weird. Uh, whatever. <laughs> but, yeah, every time I'm like literally gutted i'm like i feel like i'm dying like this hurts so much <laughs> the novel does such a good job of making us love resand i know also a really good show don't tell moment because like resand is telling favor these things but like that exposition makes sense within the context of the plot yes and he's like telling a story it's like a story within a story yeah because he's, like, laying out the whole thing. And I just, like, really appreciated that. It's also really effective, like, when he lets, invites her into his mind and will yeah. show her things. That's also an incredibly effective narrative technique. On this reread, I found it pretty tiresome, the, like, let's make one another jealous stuff between Feyre and Resand when they were in the summer court. Which I didn't really, I, I don't know, I thought it was, like, part of the allure and part of the tension in the first time I read this right. novel. But now it just kind of makes me think of a really damaging narrative of possession in our contemporary context that has woven into monogamous romantic relationships. Yeah, I find it like really annoying. And I think it gets complicated even more by the fact that the mating bond and having accepted that makes Resand like extra jealous. Like, right. It's like real like looks at Feyre and he's like, he goes off, you know, like, I don't know how to feel about that. I don't know, because it's like so primal i guess yeah. and instinctual but we only like looking back on it knowing that resand knows this whole time yeah shouldn't he have felt that way the whole time or that he's just like controlling it and we're supposed to see that as like oh a huge points in his favor because he's so good at controlling himself and giving her choices when at the yeah. same time he didn't tell her this let's uh circle back to dom sub vibes in the court of nightmares so Feyre and resand and everyone goes to the court of nightmares uh-huh you want me to yeah this is okay you. Fine. This is your thing. <laughs> okay fine so why am... i'm always the one who brings this up when Feyre and resand and everyone else goes to the court of nightmares and Feyre's wearing this super revealing dress that's like barely a dress yeah which i cannot like the way it's described i cannot picture it at all like it wouldn't stay on your body unless you had a bajillion pieces of like fabric tape yeah because like is it like are you wearing pasties like because like, it I covers her boobs yeah and like there's a belt and then like panels that are not connected. It's almost like a loincloth. Yeah, but longer. I don't really understand how it's supposed to look. I get really confused at and that how scene is every it time. Supposed to cover anything up. Like, like when it you're walking. Doesn't really. Maybe that's the point. Well, that is definitely the point. Yeah. But so what I find interesting about this scene is that it's weaponizing female sexuality mm-hmm. in order to exercise control over the court of nightmares so this is part of Resan's performance mm-hmm. of being like a blase i i don't give a fuck i use people i'm awful and manipulative just like all of y'all mm-hmm. and that's why i can still rule you so don't mess with me right it is essentially justified within the plot that like he says something like oh it's been a while since i've gone there i have to like go pay right. a visit in order to like assert my dominance again right plus they need to get the like the mirror or whatever ball thing ball thing (laughs) the veritas (laughs) that's right i don't know so it's just very much using Feyre and her body 
as part of this performance, but Feyre consents to it at the same time. So I don't know if we can judge that. Right. Because before they go, Rhysand is like, I don't want you to see me be this person. And I'm like terrified about like what we have to do kind of. And I think he's like, but then clearly Feyre finds it hot. Oh, God. Yeah. Like, not even kind of. Like, 100%. Yeah. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. Three thousand percent. (laughs) I don't know. Like, he gives her the choice to not do it. And I think she kind of knows what she's walking into. Or I guess it's also, like, a cover for her in order to be able to, like, be sexually intimate with him. Right. Which she isn't. Correct me if I'm wrong. But, like, at this point, this is the first time when they, like, Mm -hmm. really are doing some sexy stuff yeah and it's not even they don't even like really do anything like there's just so much tension oh my gosh yes because like this is like like, this is kind of like i think what starts her down the road of accepting like she has feelings emotional and sexual for resand and she's like kind of like i just want to have fun and then i'm like why did you say that like that was real hurtful (laughs) you know like when they're in the the hotel thing Mm -hmm. and i'm just like that's so mean (laughs) I mean, unless it's what you want, like, whatever, you know. But she was lying to herself, so. Yeah, to herself and Resand. Okay, I have a question for you. Okay. Would you be upset with Reese for not telling you he was your mate? Yes. Very. Okay. Livid. (laughs) Okay. Knowledge is power. And he operates with knowledge and makes a decision Every single day, multiple times a day, not to tell her. Yeah. That is fucked. Okay. What about you? What do you think? I don't think I'd be that mad. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's so hot. No, but also because like, it's hard because like Feyre is really upset. And I understand that, obviously. I would be more upset than she is in in the book. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. But he's like letting her choose and Mm. decide and like wait it out like if she wants to do that there's the thing though permissioning yeah that that still means that he has the agency yeah because he lets her yeah i I think i even on his terms here yeah because on his terms he decides when to tell her yeah well no he doesn't he who knows how long he would have kept that from her i mean he says he was gonna tell her until they got like shot out yeah okay I don't think he's lying to her. Like, it seemed like that's what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I like, I'm feeling conflicted about it now. I didn't have a problem with this in my first read. I was so caught up in the love story and they're my OTP and all this shit that, and and so now on a second read, I think it's really kind of fun to come back with a critical Mm -hmm. eye. Yeah. Because I'm also like, he's, he's about to just like let her marry Tamlin. I'm like, I think part of it is hard because I'm like, I cannot imagine being so in love with someone and then being like, not saying anything and just let them live their happy life that he assumes they want. But it's not happy. And he knows that it's not happy. Okay. Yeah, he does. That's some bullshit. It's just like some like self-sabotaging martyr. I'm not worthy. People who get close to me are hurt. That sort of business. Yeah. A part of me thinks that like Rhysand is concerned about like the way his like what happened with his parents they were mated and it didn't work out like at all Mm -hmm. and so he's trying to prevent that from happening with her and himself i don't know i feel weird about it and like i kind of understand why he didn't tell her because she also like (laughs) reacted exactly like he said she would she like ran away (sighs) she needed some space 
She deserved some <laughs> fucking space to process and be like, fuck you, I'm out. This is my choice. You wanted to permission me and let me do whatever. This is my choice. Yeah. Goodbye. I think I love a romantic gesture more than like, I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I'm such a killjoy. <laughs> you are a killjoy. God. God. <laughs> Why do you do this to me? Whatever. I'm fine with it. I wouldn't be mad. I don't think I'd be mad. That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> You're prepared for this eventuality because you've read this book. Yeah, but even, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true. And maybe this like dovetails with my love of spoilers. Yeah. I don't know. Or why I sometimes read the last page first of a book. Or I used to do that a lot more than I do now. Mm -hmm. But I used to do that all the time growing up. I find information so important to me. It's so important to me. Like yeah. the intellectual side of me is how I connect with things. It's how I, I don't know. It's how I make sense of my world. Yeah. Um, it's how I have fun. Yeah. So maybe it's just like viscerally. It's clearly producing some like yeah. some sort of visceral reaction in me right now. I get it. I get it. I'm like emotionally Rusand is terrified about what's going to happen when he tells her. And I get that. Yeah. More, I think. That's anxiety. That is. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I get it. Yeah. What if? Yeah. What if? What if this happens and my whole world is like collapses? So I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't tell her either. <laughs> Another question. I'm like full of questions today. Are we obligated to hate our partner's enemies? Depends. On? The situation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being a shit. <laughs> You're giving us a lot of information here. Because <laughs> it's like a weird situation with both Tamlin and Resand, where Tamlin is like, and Alice want to like burn the clothes she comes back with from the night court. And she's, and Feyre is like obligated to hate Rhysand because she is partnered with Tamlin. And then it seems like also the opposite. Like when she's with Rhysand, he kind of also starts telling her all these terrible things about Tamlin. And then she's like supposed to hate him. I'm like, do we have to hate our partner's enemies? I don't know. I want them to hate mine is the problem. Yeah. I'm like, I don't like them. You can't like them. <laughs> See, that doesn't bother me as much. I don't think. Hmm. I don't know. Because I, I think what, so with the Tamlin thing about how she's supposed to hate Rhysand and everything, that seems like another part of Tamlin's manipulation oh, and yeah. control. Well, he's also lying about what happened with his family. He's trying to control her opinions about things right. in the world. Right. And with Rhysand, I, I think there's another aspect of control there because it's he's selectively giving her information in right. order to her change her opinions about something. Right. But I guess it's we're not supposed like, to assume it's the truth. Yeah. So it's just like... The book is clearly on Rhysand's side. Oh, for and sure. And therefore the readers are supposed to be too. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. All my enemies are work-related, so it's easier to like convince my partner to hate them because they just like hear only the bad things. That's what I mean. Depends on the situation. If yeah. it's like actually causing bodily harm, then obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah, then they should, which I guess in a way... You see what I mean? But if it's like some petty bullshit, then not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. No, I want them to hate them. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I thought about that I think fits really well under Shipwrecked is the Court of Dreams as a, like a chosen family. And I was going to say queer family, but no, because of queer baiting and business that we're going to get it to in the spoiler section. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it does really seem like the inner circle, Rhysand's inner circle, is not accepted by and or can't connect with biological family. So they create their own community. And I think that's a really nice sentiment and example. Yeah. I think YA does a really good job of like showing us really terrible 
biological families and how you can create your own families maybe better than adult novels do although I don't read probably enough of them to say but yeah your chosen family in my opinion is more important than your biological family so I like that we got some more information about how the sisters relate to one another Mm -hmm. especially when Feyre goes back to the mortal realm right to (laughs) so dramatic Feyre goes returned to the mortal realm to ask Nesta and Elaine to let them have their like summit or whatever right they're like g20 summit (laughs) at their house right and it seems like Elaine oddly enough actually has the most power in this sister relationship because she holds sway over Nesta it's like Elaine is the tie-breaking vote Nesta and Feyre are pretty much always going to be on opposite sides of an issue or mm-hmm. an argument. And Elaine is the one who decides things. Yeah. Which is a pretty cool, like, revindicating the power of a character that I think the novel really tries to make us see as passive and gentle and Soft. everything happens to her. Right. Which is really interesting when you think about, mm, the, like, the connection that Nesta and Feyre kind of made in Akatar when she, like, when Tamlin decides she has to go back. It's funny that they then put that mass puts them against each other again in this novel is almost a li- it was like a little jarring to me the first time I read it. I was like, you guys ended on good terms last time. Right. Like why? It's only been like a couple months. It was just I don't know. That part was kind of weird to me. I guess I'm like not as into the gendered dynamic of women fighting each other. Right. That's yeah. pro- that's problematic for me. Mm-hmm. I don't have a sister that I ever lived with. So I'm like maybe this is how sisters function yeah sometimes. i i have a brother so i don't yeah. know yeah most i just grew up with two two brothers at home so i'm like i don't know although you know what i grew up with two brothers and i would say this is kind of how it went there was like two of us against the rest the other one <laughs> i was part of the two <laughs> so maybe that is normal hmm. i don't know i mean i get that sibling relationships aren't perfect and there's right. gonna be issues there but mm-hmm. it just seems heavy-handed again yeah because nesta is supposed to be so iron willed and i don't i think we're supposed to find nesta unlikable right but i actually really like her i like her too kind of a lot so much yeah i'm real here for she stands her fucking ground i appreciate that agreed it's probably why i like her so much i think we stand nesta hard i know and she's kind of like cutthroat and i'm like yeah (laughs) sexy times mass levels of sexy times like this is it this is the top of the this is like the 10 on the scale of one to 10 i know like if it gets more than this i might be like i'm out this is erotica (laughs) yeah which is also fine like i don't care yeah also that but yeah i got no i got nothing else to say i think they're especially satisfying because all the puns intended all of the double entendres (laughs) intended in this section i think they're especially satisfying because of the long 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 courtship well and we're i think well past halfway through the book before resand and favor actually like have sex so it's also it's been like we kind of see some tension between them in book one it's like two-thirds or 75 percent of the way through the novel right? i think so so like we see some of it in book one and then it spans the whole almost all of the rest of Akamath. Uh-huh. Although I do think I'm a killjoy it. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. That it's a little bit problematic mm-hmm. that 
when they actually have sex is essentially when they accept the given biological nature of their connection. Right. It's like sex in the context of marriage Mm -hmm. because mating is portrayed as more important than marriage in this world. So it's like it's sanctioned sex. Right. I think YA novels often do. YA novels, uh, romance novel, like all of them. And it's also like uh, the one thing I do appreciate this novel about this novel is that Feyre isn't a virgin, which I feel like a right. lot of books play on that trope of like, that's, that's true. very important. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, so I can really appreciate that. But at the same time, like with Resand, it's like, oh, no, you have to be OTP before you can yeah. do it. Yeah. It, it is trying to i think that the novel especially because we see we're supposed to identify and like love resand so much Mm -hmm. that we're supposed to identify with that hurt that he feels when pharaoh says i just want to have fun right in the hotel room scene where it's like that's also perfectly okay right but the novel has a specific viewpoint on that right i guess it's hard because we're coming at it from pharaoh's point of view so we also as the reader know that she has these feelings for resand that she's like keeping at bay yeah, it's complicated. It is. Which is fine. I love a complicated story. Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. The chapter between Feyre finding out Resan's her mate. So when she like drops him off at the Illyrian camp and then has more take her to the cabin or whatever. And when they get together is so boring every time i'm like i'm just gonna skip it and you I... don't like the when she's like grappling with herself and painting and all this stuff no i'm like why are we talking to more like i think it's just too much for me i'm like this is a lot well it's because you wouldn't have been mad at him <laughs> so you're like fast forward yeah maybe that is why but every time i've read it, i'm like when are we gonna get back to the story i don't think i like I'm not a huge fan of like quiet books so I'm kind of like oh this is boring that didn't bother me at all really no because it seemed like yeah that makes sense this is necessary to process and this character like for this character and this character's development and their arc like this hiatus I guess Mm -hmm. is necessary me on the other hand I'm like this is real boring when are we gonna get back to things happening I think I want things that move. When the are they going to bang? <laughs> Even though when I read it the first time, though, I was just like, "This is really boring." Like, can we get a move on? When they get a lot of moves on, they do. With Throne of Glass, there's a lot of chapters where I'm like, "This is really boring." And I'm like, "I'm going to give this up," <laughs> which is why I haven't read the last book yet. <laughs> it's on the podcast TBR. Yeah, I'll read it. I'll read it. It's scheduled. <laughs> I have to come back to this point that I mentioned in my initial reactions that this story is just so well crafted on a plot level. The tension spikes and there's a lot of exciting parts. The bone carver, the weaver, stealing half the book of breathings from the summer court, etc, etc, etc. But then Moss kind of lets the tension ease or it shifts to a different kind of tension. It's more interpersonal tension, not like Feyre fearing for her life tension. Mm-hmm. It's like Feyre Nesta tension or sexual tension with Reese or... We see how her friendships are developing, Feyre's healing and learning more about herself, learning to fight sorts of montage scenes. And then on top of that, there's all the sexual tension, which like all of it, that's like a, a driving force behind like what keeps the reader engaged, I think. Right. And that Moss does that really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just makes for a fun reading experience. And like the twists at the end of the novel and how it sets it up for the end, for the last book in the series. And it's just a goddamn good book. It's fun to read. I love it. 
Resand can be super manipulative. And I feel like we've touched on this a few times throughout this episode. But some of them things he like keeps from Feyre or when he's setting her up to be bait for the adder and or I'm not 100% sure he didn't know Lucian was coming, like, all those things. I'm like, you need to be more honest with the person you want to be your life partner. Yeah, it, and it seems like Resand is set up to be this sort of almost omnipotent, mm-hmm. can-do-no-wrong yeah. type character. And Feyre's the one who has to struggle with stuff, and Resand doesn't. Right. Because he's... Every time he gets information from Asriel or he, it's like, oh, confirmation. This confirmed what I already expected because right. he's supposed to be so smart and so instinctual and can like understand strategy and all this shit. I don't know. He's kind of too perfect. And I guess maybe in a way that makes sense that he would like understand these like interactions between people and what might or might not happen because he is like thousands of years old. And on another level of his manipulation is he can literally go into people's minds right. and see whatever the fuck he wants. And he tells Feyre, like, you'll feel things about this, but just keep doing it and it'll be fine. Like, you'll it'll stop feeling like you crossed a line. I'm it's like, for the greater good. I don't think it should ever feel like you stop feeling like you're crossing a line. Yeah. Because that's how you know you're doing it too much. Which is funny because I was like, I want my superpower to be mind reading. I know. Yeah. You said that in your interview. I know. He always has an ulterior motive, and that's kind of frustrating. And I really do see why Feyre thinks that's frustrating. Like, yeah. you taught me to read because you wanted me to read the Book of Breathings the whole fucking time. Yeah. Like, it's just so much of a long game that I'm kind of like, fuck off. Yeah, it's just but when you've lived too. for so long, he's it's like, too. No, he's like Nicholas no. Lamel. Like, he's uh-uh. lived for I do so not long, agree. you can just play no. the long game. No, I am not. I am not on board with this. That's fine. We can disagree. <laughs> we agree. We to disagree. Feyre on page 103 says, I was burning through books every day, stories about people and places I'd never heard of. They were perhaps the only thing that kept me from teetering into utter despair. And I was just like, wow, cool, cool, cool. Like, Cool, that's like not yeah. adding me at all. Yeah, yeah. But it is, it is. <laughs> it is, that's wow. Maybe less so now than like in my more formative years. But I was like, oh yeah, I feel you, Feyre. A year ago, that was definitely 100% yeah. me. yeah. I'm reading six books right now. Probably this is not a good sign. <laughs> or no, I would just burn through them yeah. to not have to think about other things. My life. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Just keeps your brain busy. It does. But I really liked this. Mm. It's like a meta comment. Yeah. Which often I actually really hate in books. And I feel like a lot of them do that pretty often. And I'm like, um, I get it. I'm reading the book. I got it. Like, like i'm reading a book don't tell me i'm reading a book yes that is like really annoying to me but in this instance i was like (laughs) that doesn't surprise me at all that you find that annoying um shout out del yes yes it's like the one rule of storytelling god and rules are meant to be broken are they that is not what (laughs) rules are for actually Recommend if you like the first book, Sexy Times. Super badass female protagonists, fairy stories. Although I wouldn't say this is like your normal kind of fairy story. No. It's not like The Cruel Prince. It's about the beings that happen to be fairies. (laughs) (laughs) Which I can appreciate. I think we do sometimes see more of those stories where people just happen to be the thing that they are instead of their trauma yeah i really just love this book and i love this series i've read it this book in particular 
a few times and every time I'm like, yeah, I love it. And I will say that I almost often stop once I get back to the Illyrian camp after sexy times because uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, that's good. That's all I needed was for them to be together. <laughs> I don't really care about the high burn part. It's so cathartic. Like that's the climax, pun intended, yeah, yeah. of the book. Yeah, exactly. Before we end, it's time for Real Talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way? Or did it make you interrogate a concept, system, trend you hadn't before? I guess for me, just the pleasure of being able to talk about a book that you love, but there's a lot of issues with, with someone whose intelligence you really respect and whose opinion you, you know, really take seriously and who's an awesome friend. So that's my Real Talk. My Real Talk deserves a content warning for sexual assault, so skip ahead if you don't want to listen to this part. Understandable. But I think we don't really get these depictions of sexual assault of men in books, and I thought that Sarah J. Mass handled it in a pretty responsible way. I feel like this is something that doesn't come up very often in YA fantasy, at least, and I think um, Mass handled it well, and I really appreciated that she would show that sexual assault can happen to anyone. Like, I know... In our society, we see it as like a problem for women, and obviously it is. And I do think it's probably um, occurs to women more often. But I do think obviously men can be sexually assaulted and raped. And I appreciated her showing that that's possible, especially from someone that we see as such a strong and powerful character. Right. Um, and I appreciated that. Absolutely. And it's not just the Amarantha. It's not just recent. Um what happens with him with Amarantha. Mm-hmm. It's also Ianthe. Right. And about the, in that scene in particular where Rhysand shows Feyre his memory. Mm-hmm. It's like a pensive type moment. Right. Um, and Ianthe says we could, you know, we would have so much power. Our offspring would be, right. you know, so powerful or whatever. Think, imagine what we could do. I think that really shows very well this fact that sexual assault is about power. Right. More than it's about sex, right. actually. Right. Um. And one thing that I, uh, you're bringing this point up, just I kind of wonder is if Resand were a woman mm-hmm. and Amarantha were a man in this heterosexual paradigm. Right. And he technically consented, mm-hmm. even though it was like coercion, would it be a more problematic like hashtag me too? Mm-hmm. Would he be believed? Probably not. And yeah. I, I mean, but also men being sexually assaulted have a hard time probably getting yeah, believed also. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, it, it is w- what I think is really important to, I like that you brought up this point because mm-hmm. in the like wake of hashtag me too, and it's still going on and everything. And I hope the reckoning continues. Right. But these sorts of really gray area, murky right. um, types of sexual assault are important to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Um, Especially when you think about it in the context of the aftermath of these kind of situations, because even post Amarantha or while this is going on, obviously, I don't know that like other people realize that Resand is being coerced into the situation. No. And they are saying terrible things to him, like to his face, behind his back. Like, so I think that like really does a good job of showing like, it's not just like the physical assault that is 
terrible it's also like the emotional toll it takes on you and like the things people say when they don't believe you before we end we're going to talk about aquar and how it relates to the rest of series so the series so this is officially a court of secrets and spoilers (laughs) if you haven't read aquar a court of wings and ruin the third book and you don't want spoilers, skip this part of the episode. For real, skip this part of the episode. And we'll be back in a fortnight with an episode about Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. Last warning, turn back now. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about more in the way she uses Cassian and Asriel, which is going to be an interesting discussion in the wake of talking about Resand and Amarantha, I think. Um, I think more thinks her behavior is excusable because of how terrible her home life was. But at this point, hundreds of years later, I think what she does and how she treats them is kind of shitty. Like she's always playing them against each other and using Cassian to like kind of block her from Asriel and then using Asriel for I'm not 100% sure what. And I think Mass realizes that and that's why we get Moore's bisexual storyline in the next book. Because it's like this love triangle is not going to work out. So. Right. so let's do something else with more. And I think part of it is because Mass thinks that provides an excuse for her treatment of Asriel and Cassian because it was a secret and we didn't know and Feyre didn't know. But it kind of just turns out that Mass is queer baiting. And it's not just a series that we have seen problems with queer baiting with. And right. we'll link to an article about other YA fantasy books. But not only is it queer baiting, it's also falling into really damaging stereotypes about mm-hmm. people in the queer community. Yeah. Like people with non-hetero, um, of like non-heterosexualities are like predatory. Right. And also, um, which is like, there's been that sort of story going along. Like you can catch it mm-hmm. or you, or, you know, this like idea of non-heterosexuality is contagion right which is why you can't have access to it in curricula or sex ed or something like that abstinence only like whatever and i would be really curious to know how far out mass had planned Moore's bisexual storyline because one thing i did notice in here that i don't remember um really paying attention to in the first read was when Moore goes out and Asriel and Cassian both make comments about how, where were you? You mm-hmm. left Rita's or whatever. Right. And she's like, it was none of your business. Yeah. Which I think that's supposed to throw up a red flag for the readers because it's so different than the candor that they, with which mm-hmm. they normally address one another. Right. Um, so like, that seems like maybe a hint that something is going on, like a little breadcrumb dropped, mm-hmm. but this really doesn't get taken up until a court of wings and ruin and the end of a court of wings and ruin. Right. And it causes like a bit of a rift between Feyre and, more in that book because Feyre feels like what she's doing with Azrael is kind of like pretending to like him so that people don't realize she's bisexual yeah which another problem that I have with this is that I mean honestly SJM's treatment of more and her sexuality and the like coming out or not her in the closet what she does when she's in the closet is one of my biggest issues with the series Mm -hmm. because it really falls into damaging stereotypes about bisexual people being slutty about not knowing what they want about being attracted to whomever and whatever and all bets are off and fuck the consequences yeah yeah Mm -hmm. about being promiscuous that sort of thing yeah which is like a pretty myopic and limited and uninformed view of what bisexuality is about. 
So this isn't like super spoilery for this section or whatever, but uh, like I feel like we start to see like the hintings of it in this book and it leads into Aquar. Um, so I just wanted to talk about it because I like I feel really bad for Asriel, I think, mm-hmm. and the way he's treated in this book. And I don't know. It's like frustrating. Especially because you can kind of tell that Moore knows what she's doing. For sure. Definitely. Because... And Cassian also seems to know that she knows what she's doing. But then Resand is like, Feyre mentions this business to Resand, and he's like, if you were smart, like, don't you dare bring it up, that sort of thing. He kind of coerces her into silence. Yeah. And part of me gets it in that, like, it's Cassian, Asriel, and Moore's triangle. So, and like, Feyre doesn't really know them that well. Like, she's been there for a couple months. But at the same time, I'm like, someone should say something. And I guess we see that in the next book. And it kind of like falls apart. That's all I got. I'm not happy with this storyline. Make her queer from the beginning or or don't and it like will stay as heteronormative as it is. Yeah. But and part of I think part of the problem is it also feels like she's written all these books and I don't remember when Aquar Aquar came out like most of Throne of Glass was done mm-hmm. and people are complaining about the lack of diversity in her books and so she's like let's make more bisexual. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah. So I think that's frustrating and I don't think she wrote it in a way that it deserved to be done thanks for listening to jk it's magic we'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of six of crows by lee bardugo and watch out for the occasional minisode about a range of fantasy adjacent topics you can find us on instagram and twitter at jk magic pod post or tweet about the show using the hashtag critically reading do you have an idea for a book that we should add to our tbr Email us at jkmagicpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your suggestions. And check out the new tab that's on the website, jkmagicpod.com. If you know a friend who would enjoy the podcast, please, 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 please spread, <laughs> spread the word. You can subscribe to JK It's Magic on the podcast app of your choice. And we would really appreciate it if you would take the time to rate and review the show. It helps other people find us. JK It's Magic is recorded on the land of Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho Native peoples. Until next time, stay magical. I use troubling a lot in this recording already. Because you're switching from problematic. Problematic. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Such an academic. I'm annoying.